So, um, so today the emphasis is, is on working with the inner critic um, as opposed to the outer critic, although they're intimately related. What we turn inwards, we turn outward usually. Um, there's a quote that I came across yesterday that, that kind of I like. It says, all judgments are self-judgments. All judgments are self-judgments. Whatever we're judging, inwardly, outwardly, socially, politically, culturally, is mostly saying something about the one who's judging. So, even though the emphasis today is on the inner critic, it will apply a lot to all the other ways that the mind judges. So, as I mentioned earlier, the reason I'm doing this day is because I see in people's lives, and particularly in people's practice, spiritual practice, meditation practice, dharma practice, that the critic is uh, a major uh, challenge, a source of suffering and uh, interfering process with ourselves, with our well-being, with our happiness. So this day is really about how to increase well-being and happiness through understanding the critic, through learning to disengage and disidentify with its uh, content, with its attacks. So um, I want to contextualize a little uh, from a Buddhist perspective um, how we might understand this. So um, the Buddha gave a a lovely teaching um, once upon a time Um, in referring to what he called the two darts, the two arrows. And um, the first dart is just the the dart dart of suffering that happens just through ordinary everyday experience, the physical pain, emotional struggle, life challenges, aging, sickness, all of that. That's the first dart of suffering just by living in a human body. The second dart is what we add to that, which is often the voice of the critic or judgment of, say, with an emotional pain, of, oh, you're still dealing with this? You're not over this already? I mean, you sh- that grief should have passed way long ago. You, know, you should be way beyond this. You know? So we add this extra layer of suffering called the second dart. So that's really what the critic is, is a second layer of suffering onto our experience. Another way of understanding it is um, by understanding what's in the text a lot about the figure Mara. Mara is the personification in uh, Indian cosmology and other cosmologies of um, darkness, ignorance, suffering, death, uh, the dark egoic forces, the unconsciousness. And so um, in the text, in the Buddha's life, you this figure Mara, this symbolic representation of an inner experience of self-doubt, of self-judgment, uh, appears periodically through his life, most poignantly at the night of his enlightenment, where he was assailed, as it's said, by Mara and his armies. Um, and if you, if you understand that, archetypally or symbolically, he was assailed by the forces of um, all, all the unconscious forces that hadn't been resolved. One of those, aside from greed and fear and hatred, uh, one of those forces was the force of doubt, self-doubt, which uh, came in many disguises, in many forms, mostly the, in the form of um, when the Buddha had dealt with so many of these internal struggles, and then Mara said, well, who do you think you are to take to sit on this seat of this throne of enlightenment? You know, who do you think you are? How can you prove that you're worthy of attaining full awakening? A voice sound familiar. Who do you think you are 
to sit in meditation, to be at Spirit Rock when all these people are suffering in the world, and you've got all these other problems, who do you think you are to be sitting here in meditation? Right. And the Buddha, so, and, and this figure Mara, uh, which I understand is a personification of, of doubt, self-doubt, and uh, it, it crops up every, you know, periodically through his life. Um, you know, I'll read something. Uh, <clears throat> Stephen Batchelor writes really beautifully about this in a book called Living with the Devil. And um, so I'll read a couple of things. So when the Buddha was practicing uh, the, the Buddha-to-be, <clears throat> Gautama recalls, Gautama is the name of the Buddha prior to his enlightenment, I was living on the bank of the Naranjara River, engaged in deep struggle, practicing meditation with all my strength in the effort to find freedom. Then Mara came up to me and started talking in words, appearing to be full of sympathy. Oh, you're so thin and pale, he said. You must be nearly dead. It would be far better to live. You could do much good by leading a holy life. The devil appears to have the Buddha's best interests at heart. At first glance, what he, seem, what he says seems reasonable. Mara discourages Buddha's asceticism and extols a life dedicated to doing good in the world. He does not encourage Gautama to do anything evil. His aim is to weaken his resolve to be free from the compulsive drives that trap him in cycles of anguish. So often this voice, the voice of the critic, will come as a voice masquerading of, as kind as wisdom. Oh, you're really tired. You've had a hard work day. You don't need to meditate. You can go to bed. It's okay. And then we get to bed. It's like, I can't believe you didn't meditate. You're such a slacker. <laughs> My God, it's pathetic. Like, how many hours did you work today? You call that hard work? Blah, blah. <laughs> so, and then um, throughout the Buddha's life, you know, as I said, it, he appeared who do you think you are to um, develop a whole sangha of monks and nuns? Who do you think you are to blah, 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 blah? And, um, and so that there would be a little dialogue, and at some point the Buddha would, would recognize, oh, this is, this is the force of the mind, this is the force of Mara. And he would say, Mara, I see you. Mara, I see you. Through the power of simple awareness, he sees him. And then Mara would always get really disappointed and dejected and slink away. He would kind of wither away. So, um, and that's really, that's, that's what happens with us. That's what happens with our practice. Through the power of awareness, we see more clearly over time these, these forces of the mind that undermine us, that uh, uh, belittle us, that judge us and shame us in different ways. So, uh, and through our practice, we can also use that, that understanding, oh, I see you, whether you use the word Mara or critic or whatever it is you refer it to. So I want to read a poem by uh, Robert Bly <clears throat> called People Like Us. And I'm reading this poem because, um, because life is difficult, life is challenging, life is complex, messy, unlike our mind would like it to be, right? And we often have a lot of judgments about all of that. We have, have this idea that somebody somewhere is living really well, life is smooth, life is going according to plan, and they're doing it right. Right. How, many, how many of you thought today as you were sitting that everybody else here was doing it right? <laughs> that everybody else knows what they're doing in meditation, that they're just following their breath, they're not lost in thoughts about work or money or love, they're just, you know, sitting there quietly. But how many people thought that had that some sort of idea that everybody else was getting it and I'm not? And, yeah, it's very common. There are more like us all over the world. There are confused people who can't remember the name of their dog when they wake up, and people who love God but can't remember where he was when they went to sleep. It's all right. The world cleanses itself this way. A wrong number occurs to you in the middle of the night. You dial it. It rings just in time to save the house. 
and the second story man gets the wrong address where the insomniac lives and he's lonely and they talk and the thief goes back to college. Even in graduate school you can wander into the wrong classroom and hear great poems lovingly spoken by the wrong professor. And you find your soul and greatness has a defender and even in death you are safe. So, you know, often our experiences we bumble through life. <laughs> Entering the wrong classroom, getting a teaching anyway, turning up at the wrong address, forgetting where we're going, who we are, what the person is we're talking to, we're talking about. And the question is, how do we meet that? How do we meet that chaos and disorganization and things not going to plan and all of that? Do we meet it with openness, with curiosity, with receptivity, with wonderment? Do we meet it with judgment, with criticism, with this isn't how it should be, this isn't how I planned it? So, you know, there's many people in this room and as many people there are in this room, the critic operates in, in, in as many unique ways and uh, hopefully today we'll get to recognize a little more closely some of those ways. So I read this cartoon a lot um, as an example of different ways that it manifests called uh, Checklist of Feeling Pathetic. <laughs> See if you find yourself in here. Choose somebody and compare yourself unfavorably to them. See if that comes up today. Examine your face closely in the mirror and notice all the flaws. <laughs> Relive embarrassing and awful moments that occurred years ago. It's a very popular meditation theme, that one. <laughs> Make a mental note of all the people you regularly disappoint. <laughs> and add especially people who share the last name as you. Disregard all compliments, especially from people who supposedly love you. <laughs> so there's a picture of a woman and she's getting the compliment, you look great. And she's thinking, don't patronize me. <laughs> and lastly, resigning yourself from now on that from now on this is how you will always feel. Maybe we should get some big pieces of paper and put our own captions today. Yeah, we'll organize that. That would be fun. So, as I said earlier, it's, it's important that we laugh and we have a sense of humor about this because um, it's very painful. And there's something amusing about the quirky ways that we interrupt our own well-being, our own happiness. So what would your list be, your, your own checklist of feeling pathetic? What are the things that you do habitually, every day, happily or seemingly happily, that can make, make your life miserable? So if I had a list, my current list might be something like um, all the things that need fixing in my house that aren't fixed that I haven't gotten to, all the projects that I haven't done yet, um, etc. So one of the one of the orientations of the critic is um, basically saying that you're human, that you have all your idiosyncrasies and foibles, and it's not okay. It's not okay to be who you are. It's not okay to show up how you are. It's not okay to look how you are. It's not okay to think how you think. How you think. It's not okay the way you're doing what you're doing. So one of my favorite places to observe the critic is when I'm out backpacking. I often go backpacking alone. And um, so I, you know, the critic comes along for company, you know. <laughs> and... Um, you know, it will, it will inevitably come up with some, some comments about how I'm not doing it right. You know, how come you didn't go over to this lake and not that lake? You know, how come you didn't take this trail? How come you forgot that at home but you brought this? You know, that sleeping bag would be much better. So it's sort of entertaining if we have some space around it. Or in meditation, you know. How many of you noticed the judge in when you were meditating this morning? Anybody? Yeah, I'll see a lot. See, see how common it is? Most people put their hands up. So other ways I notice it, um, the critic often takes both sides of an argument so you can't win. <laughs> so 
you know, it will say something like, just be spontaneous, just, just let it all flow. And then you let it all flow. It's like, I can't believe you're so disorganized. <laughs> or you take a, you know, go somewhere alone on a holiday or a hike or some of the movies. And then you get there, it's like, I can't believe you're doing this alone. Why can you invite anybody? You're always so lonely. <clears throat> oh, this is what I notice when I'm hiking. Um, Good, good job for making to the top of the path so quickly. But why'd you go so fast? What's the, what's the, what's the rush? Like, enjoy, you know, being the moment. So, uh, so noticing how the critic can have this um, patting on the back tendency. Oh, good boy, good boy, doing well, doing well. Doing well, it's good, yes, no, yes. So Walter Scott said, caught not the critic's smile, nor dread his frown. So often what we're doing is trying to court the critic's smile. We're trying, we, we, if you think about how you act and make decisions, often we're living in fear of the critic's wrath. We're living in the fear of the critic's condemnation. And we think it might be fear about other people's condemnation, but it's often about our own we fear getting slammed because it's so painful and difficult. So the most common uh, form of the critic is in the, in the realm of you're not good enough. You're not enough. Fill in the blanks. You're not enough. Not, you know, not, you're not something enough. Smart enough. Deep enough. Old enough. Young enough cute enough, you know, we could fill in a lot of blanks here. Anybody want to fill in the blank? You are n- successful. successful enough, rich enough, not perfect enough, perfect enough. disciplined enough, safe enough, safe enough. brave enough, safe enough. haven't done enough, compassionate enough, not spiritual enough. Yeah, big one here. <laughs> yes, there's a lot of that. So I tell this example of um, when I was working with some folks uh, this in uh, um, this company that's it was like a hedge fund, and um, so I was doing some work with some folks, and uh, I went in one day into the office, and there was a lot of jubilation in the office, and and uh, the trader had made a particularly spectacular trade that day and I was working with him later that day because um, he was always stressed and um, I expected him to be happy because you know everyone else was happy he'd made a good trade and made lots of money for the company and and I saw him and he was really stressed and looked really kind of perturbed and I said what's going on you uh, you've done a great day's work and you've made 50 million dollars for your company today not bad day's work in my book <laughs> which is true that's how much they made and um, he said, well, you know, I really knew I should have bought sooner and held on a few more hours. I would have made a few more million. <laughs> so there he was, made this, you know, more money in a day than probably anybody even can imagine. And it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. It doesn't matter how big, how far, how great, you know, if we, if we live under the tyranny of this voice, it's not enough. I think there's a famous Rockefeller line about that, about money, about there's there's never enough money. So it comes in our spiritual practice and our meditation practice, comes in our relationships, our judgments about how we are in relationship or how we're not in relationship and we should be in relationship, how badly we do it. Um, Popular one is around parenting. How many parents feel like they're doing it right? I think it's a grand total of zero. this is from Annie Lamott. She says, I'm probably just as good a mother as the next repressed obsessive compulsive paranoiac. (laughs) (laughs) So that's one way of putting it. So um, as we uh, develop a mindful awareness uh, in this path, in this Buddhist path, uh, spiritual path that you're on, 
often what happens, particularly in the early years, is we start to see a lot more of our stuff than we even knew was there. You know, sometimes people come on retreats and they say, I can't believe, like, I'm thinking so much and my mind's so inane when I'm on retreat. You know, it can't always be like that, is it? So, Francoise Fenelon, who was a writer in the 16th century, wrote this. Obviously, the critic was around then, not the critic, but this, this tendency to notice uh, foibles. And what's important is, again, is how we meet those. He says, as light increases, as we see ourselves to be far worse than we thought, we are amazed at our former blindness as we see issuing forth from the depths of our heart a whole swarm of shameful feelings and thoughts. We would never have believed that we harbored such things and we stand aghast as we watch them gradually appear. But we must neither be amazed nor disheartened. We are not worse than we were. On the contrary, we are better. But while our faults diminish, the light by which we see them waxes brighter and we are filled with horror. Bear in mind for your comfort that we only perceive our malady when the cure begins. So as we develop this awareness, we see more of our stuff. We see more of our thoughts. We see more of our judgments. We see, and, it, and we can feel like we're kind of regressing or we're going backwards. And what's important is to understand the context of that, that we're, it, we're just shining the light of awareness on it. And the reason I'm mentioning this is that often that becomes a f- more fuel for the critic. Or we come into contact with, with an idealistic religion or a Buddhism where, or another religion where, um, where there's many ideals to live with compassion, with clarity, with awareness, with generosity, with patience. And we suddenly go, God. <laughs> I thought I was pathetic before, but now I feel really pathetic. <laughs> so to watch that tendency as you, as you, you know, deepen in the path to see that the, that we develop, you know, not just a critic, but we develop a spiritual critic, mindfulness critic, or compassion critic. So, so if it's so not fun to be living with the critic, why do we put up with it? Why do we live with it? Why do we believe it? Why do we let it torment us ceaselessly in the day? So developmentally, in the, the critic in the form of the superego structure uh, develops for many different reasons, but one of the reasons it develops is a, is a, is a, form, of, a form of rudimentary conscience and a form of strategizing to enable us to orient in the living situation that we grew up in in order to you know, conform to the rules and to make to secure the the or to maximize support and care and love is coming our way. So we learn to do the right thing in the social familial context we grow up in, in order to survive. And it seems that that functioning is necessary at that early age. So we know how to navigate the world. So. Our caregivers love us, and the people around us love us and take care of us. And that develops, it hardens over time to not do this, do that, be good, don't be angry, don't be sad, be nice, or whatever your story is from your family of origin. You know, that, that thinking, that patterning hardens over time. Another, another contribution to the critic is, the, is, is how we internalize the messages that we receive growing up. So some of, some of us receive very painful messages, not being good enough. Maybe it wasn't said overtly, but it was implied. Maybe we could just never quite you know, satisfy our parents' desire for us to achieve academically or in sports or in love or however we were expected to be, ice skating, who knows what torment you had to go through. (laughs) So we internalize that. Sometimes we internalize their own inner critic. We may not have overtly received so much judgment that we can remember, but we know from looking at them present day 
that they're also suffering from their own inner critic and their own inner hostility. And we, 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 we kind of pick that up by osmosis, as children do. And another process that's involved with the critic is it... Um, uh, there's a sort of intrapsychic mechanism that happens that as we, in our infancy and in our, in our younger years, certain, certain types of emotional pain are really intolerable for that young psyche to hold and experience. And so those emotions get repressed. And the, the, there's an aspect of the uh, superego mechanism that helps reinforce that and helps... So what happens over time habitually, when strong emotion comes up, it's slammed down with our thinking process. And that was a survival mechanism when we're earlier. As we get older, it, it no longer serves to, to support us. So we often find it difficult to access difficult emotion when it comes up. We try to turn our attention to it, and we just start thinking about it. And it, 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 goes, it just you know, disappears. So the, the critic functioning is also de developed into a way to, to navigate those painful emotions. So, and this is where the critic, this is where the understanding piece is important. Underneath the judgments, often the, 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 the very judgment is a doorway to very deep levels of pain that we've not really processed and worked through. Whoopie-doo, eh? <laughs> and lastly, um, uh, it's important to recognize that the critic is not just thoughts. So mostly we experience it mentally, you know, the different judgments, criticisms. But we also experience it emotionally as a, as a, as a feeling of Hopelessness, despair, um, pointlessness, meaninglessness. We experience it energetically or physically as a collapse or as a, you know, sometimes foggy. We're trying to, you know, we're about to give a talk or a presentation and, and our critic, or we're in the middle of it and our critic is on our back and we go really foggy, we go really dull. Familiar with that experience? That's the critic at work. Or it's energetic, we just feel deflated, we feel collapsed, we feel just fatigued. Again, it can be a different form of the critic. So the good news <clears throat> is that we can do profound work with the critic and have much deeper levels of freedom and well-being if we do the work around it. And I've done this work with people for many years, probably the last eight years or so, I'd say, and watched how people have, uh, uh, in varying ways, freed themselves from the tyranny of the critic. And to see how much lightness and joy and energy and well-being that can, that can happen, that can create. So one um, uh, example I have of that, there was, uh, I was teaching a retreat up the hill, and uh, this man had been working on his critic for a long time, mostly through the practice, I think, the meditation practice. And um, as happens with mindfulness, um, as when we develop it and over time, we start to, uh, the awareness becomes stronger and more pervasive than our thinking mind, than our afflictive emotions. And so we have more space to see the coming and going of these things and to be less caught, less hooked, less identified. And so he was walking down the hill one day in the middle of this retreat where his critic had been on his case a lot about his practice and meditation and, and the clarity arose in the space of awareness. Oh, it's just a bunch of thoughts. It's just a bunch of thoughts. 
No, 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 not good enough for this, and not good enough for that, and when are you going to do this, and why didn't you do that, and it's just a bunch of thoughts. So from one perspective, the critic in its verbal form, cognitive form, is just a bunch of thoughts that we give a lot of attention to, that we give a lot of esteem to, a lot of power to, a lot of authority to, and we, that we listen to, right? But they're just thoughts. Like, where is the judge right now? Where is the critic? Where is this thing that's always on your case? It, it doesn't actually have a location. But it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a conditioned process of thinking that we give a lot of special treatment to. And when we can see, when we can rest in that strength of awareness, we can see that for what it is. It's just thoughts. <clears throat> I want to read something again from Stephen's book about the devil. Although the Buddha is said to have con conquered the forces of Mara on achieving awakening, that did not prevent Mara from harassing him until shortly before his death 50 years later. Mara's tireless efforts to undermine the Buddha by accusing him of insincerity, self-deception, idleness, arrogance, aloofness, sound familiar? Are ways of describing the doubts within the Buddha's own mind. And he goes on to say, the, the, Mara is conquered not by forcibly expelling him by understanding his strategies and seeing through his charade of invincibility. Experiencing insight into the nature of Mara, the critic, is the key to freeing oneself from his grip. The Buddha was able to overcome Mara by stabilizing his attention sufficiently in meditation to be able to see clearly and deeply into the nature of these powers that assailed him. So that's the gift of the practice, of the awareness practice. So as I mentioned, um, I never really had a critic. <laughs> well, I guess I never really became aware of it until I started meditating. And then I got to realize that I really, you know, beat up on myself a lot criticize myself a lot, judge myself a lot, gave myself a hard time a lot, and felt miserable because of that. And so um, through the practice of mindfulness and through the practice of loving-kindness, which I'll talk about later as one of the most powerful antidotes to the hostile energy of the judgmental mind, through those two practices, um, slowly got to understand the critic and mitigated its power. But one of the turning points for me, uh, I, remember, I remember the day I was sitting in this trailer in this meditation center I lived at when I was about 21. And being bombarded by these judgments and criticisms. And um, for the first time, allowed myself, or it just became apparent, to feel the impact of the pain. <coughs> so often we're so alive and we're so in our thinking mind when we're, you know, you're not good enough, blah, 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 blah. But we don't actually let ourselves feel the impact of how it is to talk to ourselves and be talked to like that, you know, many times a day. You know, if you imagine somebody else saying all the judgmental things to you that, you're, that you say to yourself, you would much more easily feel the pain of that, right? I mean, it would really hurt. Like if someone says, God, that was a really lousy presentation you just did. I can't believe the way you treat your kids. I mean, you're such a bad mother. 
You know, I mean, if someone said that to us, we, it would land so painfully. The other thing that would happen is we, we, we wouldn't put up with it for a second. We'd say, whoop, back off, thank you. Very interesting. You know? So, but, so when, I t- when I began to feel how these were landing in my heart, in my body, it's like, oh, ow, ow, painful, ow, you know, this really hurt. It's not just some idle mental conversation. It really has a deep impact in the cells. And the more we can see that and feel that, the more likely we are to be wanting to take a stance of uh, changing that, not allowing that to continue. So how do we normally work with the critic? How do, how do you normally, uh, what's your normal strategy for working with it? Normally what we do, <coughs> well, there's many things that we do. One of the things that we do is we try and rationalize. If someone's you know, giving us a hard time or judging us as our critic does, we'll try to rationalize and... and um, uh, argue, placate, we'll start, you know, we'll take up our, you know, the counsel for the defense. I'm not really that bad. I mean, I was really nice yesterday and, you know, I took the kids to the park today and, you know, and, you know, I really do have some good things somewhere about me, somewhere that I think I once remembered. So we, we, we start getting, we start engaging with the judge and what, ha- what, that, what that does is as soon as we do that, we've already given the judge authority. We've already recognized it, given its status, that we have to, give it, we have to start defending ourselves. We have to start hiring a lawyer, you know, rather than actually questioning the validity and the authenticity and the truth of that which is coming up with these judgments in the first place. Right? So, we, so what we normally do is we, we immediately give it authority. As Dustin Hoffman once said, who would probably know about this, being an actor, a good review from the critics is just another stay of execution. <laughs> and we, but we hassle for that good judgment, the good review, right? But it just prolongs the game. Sometimes we counterattack the judge, which is another form of judgment. Often what we do is we collapse. We sink. We just feel defeated. You know, we you know we give a presentation or something. We do something at work, and then afterwards we find the one thing that wasn't quite right, and our mind just goes, Ugh, "I can't believe you said that. I just can't believe you did that." It's like, oh, what a loser! You might have given this great talk or done this great piece of work for somebody, and our mind just fixates, and then we feel like crap. You know, we feel shitty, we feel bad, we feel ashamed, we feel hopeless, we feel like all that wasn't worth it because of this one micro detail that probably nobody even noticed. Hmm. So, it's useful to think about how do you work with the judge, and we'll be looking at this today. How do you, what are your strategies? effective and ineffective. So an important point in in this work with the critic is um, is we're making a distinction between judgment and discernment. Judgment and discernment. So when I use the word judgment in this context, a judgment is an emotionally laden point of view, right? A discernment is just a simple description, analysis of what is. So for instance, um, uh, you know, we might, we might look at our, you know, we might, at the end of our work day, we might, we might think, oh, you know, I was really, the discernment would be, I really wasn't that focused today. I didn't even get a lot done and uh, wasn't as productive as I hoped I'd be today. 
and that might be true. You might have been distracted, you might have had something on your mind that was pulling you away from your task. That's a discernment. The judgment is, ugh, what a pathetic waste of time. Like, you just didn't do anything. Like, how, how come you did so little today? Like, what, what's up with that? You, you're always procrastinating or, you know. Right? So it's a, it's a comment about the same event. One is a clear discernment, one is a judgment. So we're not throwing out the baby with the bathwater and saying, well, there's no place for judgment, you know. There's a place for that, you know. We need a critical eye in certain circumstances. If you're buying a house, you want to have a critical eye about what you're buying, or buying a car, or, you know, whatever. But to see how much emotional weight is to the judgment. So another aspect about the critic, which is one of the reasons why we let it in so much, is we usually believe it, or at least we, believe, there's a, at least we believe there's a grain of truth in there. And if there's enough of a grain of truth, then I should listen to it 50 times a day. <clears throat> and this is an important point. Um, and it's one of the things that trips us up. Because we believe it, or because we believe there's a grain of truth in it, we do let it keep reciting its chorus. If a friend was doing the same thing, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe we were really harsh on the phone to customer service with United Airlines because they kept us on hold for half an hour. Maybe we're a little harsher than we need to be. And maybe if our friend was sitting next to us at the kitchen table, and told us for the next three hours how harsh we were, <laughs> we would do something different than if our critic said that, right? We'd say, okay, thank you, I got it. I got it the first time, thank you. I may be a little harsh, yes, I was a little frustrated, thank you. Go away. <laughs> Stop, thank you. But no, with the critic, it will just, how many times will we beat ourselves up in a day for something like that? Not, not disallowing that we might have been harsh and we'd like to do better next time. And we're all human and we get pissed off and that happens. But we don't need to keep hammering ourselves down like a nail in a peg, a peg in a hole. Another thing that trips us up, and I'm, I'm going to close my talk soon here, is um, um, we believe we need the critic because it's our conscience, and if we got rid of the critic, we wouldn't have a conscience, and we would just throw all caution to the wind, and who knows what would happen. So we look to the critic as our conscience, rather than looking to our own natural deep sense of right and wrong, which we all have very deeply embedded within us. We all have a very wise conscience that is much, has much more subtlety and depth and refinement than the critic does, or which was much more, you know, it's a rudimentary structure that was developed at an early age, so it's much more black and white. Um, so no, to notice that, if that's the case for you. And lastly, to notice the history of the judge, to notice where it might have come from. Whose voice does it sound like? Usually sounds like someone's voice. Perhaps parent, father, mother, caregiver, sibling, school teacher. Not always, but sometimes it's useful to recognize, oh, there's dad. Hi, dad. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> it's really helpful. <laughs> it's not your real dad, but it's what you've internalized from some voice, some history. There's a story um, that uh, Jack, write about, Jack writes about in one of his books um, uh, from the writer D.S. Bennett, <clears throat> who's talking about um, her mother and that she had a very difficult childhood. She ran away a lot and um, had a very conflicted relationship. And when she's 16, she runs away from home. The police bring her back. <clears throat> 
and uh, uh, she uh, is talking to her mother and feeling a lot of remorse and, and regret and fear. And she says, um, the most devastating words my mother ever spoke to me was when I asked her if she loved me. I had just been escorted home by the police after one of my many attempts to run away, so my timing wasn't great. <laughs> she answered, how could anybody ever love you? It took me almost 50 years to heal the damage from her ugly remarks. So these kind of moments are pivotal. And maybe you had words spoken to you like that. Maybe you just felt it. Uh, or maybe you didn't. But there's some, something got internalized and, and the voice gets internalized from those traumatic times, those traumatic incidents. from the composer John Sibelius. It's interesting, a lot of the quotes that I found about the critic came from artists mm -hmm. who were probably the, their own worst critic, of course. <coughs> Pay no attention to what the critics say. A statue has never been erected in honor of a critic. So with mindfulness practice, which is this capacity to pay attention, to be aware, to be present, we can begin to see more clearly thinking processes, judging processes, discernment processes. Mindfulness over time allows a disengagement, a disidentification, mean not, not being so embroiled and caught in whatever arises in our experience. So that's one of the things we'll be using today is this quality of mindfulness. Another is the, the, the practice of metta, loving kindness, which is using very positive, intentional statements of well-wishing for yourself, which often very uh, opposite to the kinds of things your judge would say to you. So using phrases like, may you be happy. May you be safe, may you be healthy, may you be free from suffering, may you be joyful, may you live with ease, may you love and accept yourself just as you are. And I'll talk later about the role of that, but as I mentioned in my own journey, when I felt the suffering of the critic, the, the key, you know, what's key about that is that we, that when our awareness practice, when our, when our mindfulness is infused with a quality of kindness, a quality of love, then it greatly enhances its effectiveness. So when we, can, when we understand the suffering and the pain of the critic, it allows the heart of compassion to arise, which is a very powerful force in us. So I want to read a poem by Marie Howe. Uh, she's writing to her brother, Johnny, who passed away when he was 28. He took his life. And um, it's called What the Living Do. So she's writing to her deceased brother about what happens in the living world that he's now no longer part of. And you'll see in the process of the poem that in all the chaos of living a life, which we all do, that... The, when, we meet the, when we can kindly meet the conditions of ourselves and our lives, it allows the heart to open and some beautiful unexpected things in terms of our heart's relationship to ourselves. Johnny, the kitchen sink has been clogged for days. Some utensil probably fell down there. And the drainer won't work but smells dangerous. And the crusty dishes have piled up, waiting for the plumber I still haven't called. This is the every day we spoke of. It's winter again. The sky is a deep, headstrong blue, and the sunlight pours through the open living windows because the heat's on too high in here and I can't turn it off. 
For weeks now, driving or dropping a bag of groceries in the street, the bag breaking, I've been thinking, this is what the living do. And yesterday, hurrying along those wobbly bricks in the Cambridge sidewalk, spilling my coffee down my wrist and sleeve. And I thought it again and again later when buying a hairbrush. This is it, parking, slamming the door shut in the cold. What you called that yearning, what you finally gave up. We want the spring to come and the winter to pass. We want whoever to call or not to call, a letter, a kiss. We want more and more and then more of it. But there are moments walking when I catch a glimpse of myself in the window glass, say, the window of the corner video store, and I'm gripped by a cherishing so deep for my own blowing hair, for my chapped face and unbuttoned coat that I am speechless. I am living. I remember you. So in the cacophony and chaos of our lives and the cacophony of our inner life and our inner workings of our mind, we can have those openings to kindness, to a love of ourselves, a cherishing that's not gripped by the uh, painfulness of harshness of the judge. So uh, that's a lot of words. So um, what I'd like us to do right now um, with these pens and paper, pencils and paper, and if you need more, there's more on the back table. Um, I would like you to um, to reflect on your critic. I think first what I want to do, which is not quite what I planned, is I, I want you to write, just write out just in the next few minutes, because I've been talking a lot about the critic. How does it make you feel? How does being, how do you feel when you're judging yourselves, when you're beating yourself up? How do you feel, what's the consequence of that? if that's trackable. <laughs> 